0: Testing, testing, testing. Can you hear me?
1: This is Audible Autism.
0: to an episode of Audible Autism, uh, interesting questions and interesting facts. Um, I'm here with Odai um, and our guest, Maxim Thompson, Hello. Um, who is a... Uh, you're a uh, punt.
2: Yes, so my day job is I'm a tour guide. Yes. Um, tour guide. So I work so sort of punting. Is basically, you know, on a big boat, you have a big stick, and you just push people up and down a river. Tell them a lot of facts and nonsense, and try and make them laugh maybe once or twice, and then it's done. So.
0: Yes, and you're uh, making a, um, a film as well <clears throat> yeah. on uh, music, therapy and autism, uh, music therapy and children in autism. Yeah. Um, okay, well, why don't we why don't we go to the beginning and sort of, uh, the theme of this episode is autistic journey, mm-hmm. um, and how we sort of came to understand and accept our autistic identities. Um, so, I mean, why don't you go first, Maxim, and, and tell us uh, how you ended up where you are, Sure. and we'll go from there.
2: Sure, yeah. So, it kind of started around the time I was born. Um, that was when the first problems seemed to emerge, because when I was born, I had a very large head. Uh, this is something my mother knows very very well the size (laughs) of my head and so everyone was quite worried that I potentially would have water on the brain which is the technical term not the technical it's the metaphorical term for that I suppose so I went to a brain neurologist had them scanned and it seemed like it was fine but then it'd be around I was three or four I hadn't said my first words I wasn't exactly communative or wasn't really responding to social situations. so um, I was sort of taken back to the uh, psychologically analyzed by uh, a couple of uh, specialists in the field and I was uh, diagnosed with autism at that point and so um, I would start uh, primary school and I you know I'd have special helpers and all that when I was there. Well, for the first two years, I was on a, um, a course for children with special needs, uh, so that was my reception in year one. But then I was transferred to a, 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 a typical uh, primary school, but it was, um, there was only 80 kids in the entire school. So it was this by far the smallest one, which apparently was quite useful because then I could make connections and make yeah. friends, but there wouldn't be the pressure of having so many people in one space. So that went on for a while, but then by the time I was around ten or eleven, um, I it seemed very apparent that I didn't need the help from special workers who were with me as much as I did previously, and so I was taken back to uh, have further studies and tests done on, and it, t- it seemed that I was misdiagnosed, which is quite yeah quite perplexing. Um, This caused a lot of, shall we say, questions, uh, especially for my parents, asking how on earth I was able to be so easily diagnosed with autism when that seemed quite apparent to not be the case. So it would then become officially stated that I was somewhere between pervasive developmental disorder and Asperger's. But it would all be very much a kind of a going up and down. So it would, it would very much depend. Yeah. You know, you know, it's, it's like anyone on the, on the assistive spectrum. It's kind of depends on the day, how much you feel like you're in control and, or if you just want to shut yourself off and just be by yourself. So, yeah. I guess in that aspect, it's a spectrum. Yeah. Mm. Um, but the funny thing was, even though I was misdiagnosed, um, they still kept me officially as autistic for a couple more years. Firstly, so they could do some more studies and use my example as a way to help further understand the idea of the spectrum. That, you know, sort of not everyone is, you know, full on autistic or full on neurotypical, that it, and no one is, especially in any particular mm-hmm. category, it's just, you know, there can be apps. There could be levels between the levels, and even though I wasn't needing the help so much, I would still need it from time to time. And if I was officially classified as mixed diagnosed, they would. I wouldn't have got their help anymore. Mm. So. Mm. so, by the time I was at, do you, like,
0: do you think that distinction was meaningful?
2: I. It was definitely a turning point, uh, especially in how I was perceived at school. Uh, the, the the special workers I had were aware of this but still were willing to help which was really nice mm. and my parents from day 1 were always supportive of me but the fact that this had happened kind of changed their perspective of me slightly i'm not really sure in a positive or a negative way because you know you have the you have the positive side of oh you know they they're not severely autistic you know they might be able to have a normal life I should say I'm using quotation marks for normal as this is a podcast so you can't see my hands. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: So yeah, I could have a normal life. But on the other hand, that's kind of got a negative side to it because, you know, when that happens, you kind of assume then that the child is going to be fine, which I wouldn't say I was, but it's all subjective, I guess.
0: Hmm. So, I... hmm. I guess my question there is, like, you know, you didn't change being you. No. And you didn't stop being different or needing extra support in particular ways. No. So was it, you know, I question whether it was particularly meaningful to have this distinction between Asperger's and classical autism, also Mm. quote marks. Yeah. Um, You know, if at the end of the day, like, what you actually needed help with was dependent on which label you had, even though you were still you um
2: yeah it's a, it's a good thought um yeah i I'd, I'd, I'd say say that there was having that kind of distinction did almost suddenly make things seem a lot more plausible mm. um at that time i was about to head to secondary school and there was a, a risk at the time where i would have to maybe go to a secondary school that was uh Especially caters to people on the spectrum. Mm. And there are a couple of those in Cambridge. I mean, Cambridge itself, as a city, is very much, is very well adept at uh, sort of understanding the needs of children who are diagnosed. There are a lot of institutions, a lot of schools, Mm. a lot of people in in the city in general that just really are an absolute wonder. But then when that came about, it suddenly seemed possible for me to go to a again normal secondary school and so I'd be then tra- I then go on to one where there's like a thousand children and it seems like it wouldn't be much of a problem for me I mean it was at first it did take me a long while to adjust to suddenly being a school where I was one in a thousand mm-hmm. you know? and at times it can get a bit complicated when uh, you go from being astutely observed by almost all of your peers to go into another institution where you are kind of you kept an eye on but you know they've also got bigger fish to fry in a sense.
0: Mm. So how was it as a a teenager?
2: I guess complicated is the first word I can say but then what isn't complicated about being a teenager? Yeah and at the time uh like any teenager, I didn't really want to acknowledge my childhood. Uh, I think it's quite a common thing. You know, you don't want to really think about who you were when you were five, six, seven, ten, as much as when you're an adult. You don't want to think about what you were like as a teenager. You know, It's, it's a circle of life that carries on a constant circle of nostalgia and regret. And so as a teenager I was almost trying to identify myself as being neurotypical because I was like, I was autistic, but now I'm not, so I can, you know, make friends and have a good life and all that. But that wasn't the case. And when that soon became apparent, I had to re reevaluate how I was going to present myself and how I was going to handle certain situations.
0: So you were just when so you were just told that you weren't autistic.
2: Long and short of it, yes, uh,
0: really, wow, what did that what did that like do for your like internal conception of yourself?
2: Well, at the one point it yeah, you know, it boosted my confidence a little bit. I know that's not necessarily the best thing to say, <laughs> you know, you know sort talking about not being diagnosed or thing but I have, I'll, I'll be honest about it. It did boost my confidence, mm-hmm. thinking that somehow I will be all right, mm-hmm. I guess. But then you know the feelings would come back, and the the uh, the patterns and the um, mannerisms and the ways you would deal with stress and anxiety and anger would eventually seep back in, and mm. it was was kind of it was adamant where I wasn't autistic, but I certainly might as well still be if I was still feeling these things.
0: Mm. And so how did, your, how did your thought develop on those lines? Because
2: obviously you identify as autistic now. Um... I I, ident- I identify it on the spectrum, shall mm-hmm. we say. Uh, I don't necessarily know where my place is on that spectrum. Uh, when I describe this to neurotypical people, I describe it as um, the Simpsons episode where Bart has an evil twin and Dr. Hibbert says he's too crazy for Boys Town and too much of a boy for Crazy Town. That, yeah. I guess that's the simplest way to sum it. I will have moments where I will feel relatively standard. And I will also have moments where I will just completely shut off, have almost irrational reactions to certain things, and will need some time just to stay by myself until it's all done. And then there'll be times when they both intertwine, where I will almost have control over my autism in a weird way. I will sort of use certain tics and symptoms to my advantage as a way of presenting myself to other people, which is how I've, you know, managed to become a tour guide because the way I, at times, pronounce certain words or uh, present myself could be also classified as symptoms of autism, but it also works well in a situation such as being a tour guide because, you know, you're f- because, um, I, you know I find that the customers I have seem to be Relatively focused on what I'm trying to say, which is good. It's I mean, As far as a tour guide goes, you want your customers to not be bored. Mm-hmm. And there will be times where I also say things that I haven't realised I've said just yet, which for the most part works to my advantage.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I end up at times laughing at lots of my own jokes because I only realise what I've said after I've said it. So, so
0: you talked about... Um... You seem to be talking about autism being autistic as a sort, almost like uh, an add-on um, to your essential self. Is that the way you see
2: it? I think um. being, being on the spectrum, being autistic, is a, if, if it works for you, it's a wonderful part of your life. But it doesn't necessarily have to be your whole identity as much as someone with schizophrenia isn't just schizophrenic as much as someone with any ailment or mental irregularity or physical irregularity, specifically just that one thing. I think being on the spectrum can be a part of you, and that is a wonderful thing to have that and to be able to accept that part of you. But at the same time, it doesn't have to be all you are. You can be many, many things.
0: Right, but it's your, your operating system, as it were. Yeah. Um, it's, the, it's the way you... You think and you handle information. Like, yeah. I don't, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's, it's not everything you are. Like, you know, you're, you're also, you know, um, someone's like child, um, and you're also, you know, a, a worker, that kind of thing. But, like, it's still, in essence, like, you know, a rather poor part of your being. Um, and I would say when it when it comes to people with schizophrenia, you know, that's also like part of the way that they just experience the world. Like that's, yeah. you know, a way in which they they very much sort of filter everything. Yeah. Um. Do you... I'm just comparing this to my own experience because I um, I was diagnosed as an adult. Yeah. Um. We we found out um, later that my school had sort of written in my files all along that I was autistic, but just hadn't bothered to tell me or my mother. Oh wow. Okay. Um. So uh, that was quite annoying. Um, but it wasn't until I was 19 that it, it really clicked that, uh, you know, what, what that meant for me. Um, and then it took another four years before I, before I actually got diagnosed and, you know, it wasn't just me sort of saying it to people. Yeah. Um, and I, I wonder, like, how do, how do you think that um, you, you seem to have had a mildly unusual experience in sort of being told as a child you're autistic and then sort of being told that you weren't and then sort of realising that actually, like, you know, you are on the spectrum um and that kind of thing and I, I wonder like what has that done for you um that might be different if you've been told that you're autistic as an adult
2: i think if i was told i was autistic as an adult um there's a very good chance i probably might be more emotionally secure at that mm. point i there were a lot of experiences in my childhood that have allowed me to develop myself to be able to deal with awkward situations in a manner that best suits me Mm. and I feel if I had got this diagnosis when I was an adult then maybe I would have just taken it as it is, it wouldn't be as much of my identity as it is now uh, because I've had this experience pretty much all my life and now I'm an adult and you know I'm finally at the stage where I'm properly establishing myself and my and what I am. I'm, I've been able to look back on my past and think about the experiences I've had and through the work I'm doing at the moment with this documentary, being able to maybe help out others that might be in my same situation. I think if I was an adult and then I was told I was on the spectrum, I just probably would have brushed it off.
0: Mm yeah I've, I've definitely found that with a few people that i've run into in different areas of my life who are just blatantly autistic and sort of having some difficulties like fitting in because they're you know they're they're being like oh you know i'm neurotypical why isn't this working for me and i've gone because you're not neurotypical because you're autistic and it just does it kind of bounces off a lot of them like they don't really know what to do with that information
2: yeah I do.
0: um and uh, that's something that i'm i'm really trying to work out how to how to deal with, because I think a lot of people would benefit if they realised that they were thinking differently and that wasn't going to change for them. Hmm. Um, but sort of, you know, dropping that truth bomb on someone and then not following it up with any kind of like, and this is this is what you can do with this information is really not quite helping. Them. No. Um, <clears throat> do you have anything to say
1: on um, this? It's interesting, but I would say in terms of... With my experience, with my experience, because well, you found out. I think it's it's funny you found out as a you found out as a child, you found out as an adult, and I guess in terms of my one, it's sort of kind of in the middle, because my I only got diagnosed about like when I was seventeen or eighteen, so about six or seven years ago, and I think in my case, compared to you, where you're you're already adjusted to it, you already understand it, and it's just as much a part of you as it is to you. For me, it's like, I get that, but it still hasn't fully registered, I'm still sort of feeling my way about it, because, I mean, as far as, it made a lot of sense, I think when I found out, and I got an idea of the the telltale signs, as it were, for me and my mum about it, it made sense, but, we had no idea what it was, and in her case, her case because she was born and raised she was brought up and raised in Jamaica in like 50, 60, she only came around here in seventy five I guess for her when she was younger at that time, it wasn't really seen as a thing but in but when she was younger, they just thought she was stuck up more than anything else, which considering I when I think about it's like considering the time period and whatever that's actually kind of lucky and on top of that thinking about it it's not just that but she also thought excuse me it's not just that she's got it it's also a sign that my grandmother has it and my great-grandmother has it because the one thing she always said about her was she couldn't read and write but she was very good at Counting money and mental arithmetics. You always used to go down Swan Market nearby, central, nearby central, and sell wares and f- vegetables and all that stuff. So, for me, it's it is kind of. I think it's because I'm still feeling my way about it, and also because I never, I didn't have that safety. I didn't have that sort of net of workers or anything that's something I'm only trying to get now because I had I had something like that in uni but I remember now after I got diagnosed it wasn't a case of we got asked any options it was literally just here's the paper here you go to send it to uni and you figure it out so all I really know from my experience is just from from that is it's So what I really know is just from that and I'm sort of trying to piece these things together and trying to like, I was just apologies on, apologies on dating this episode, but I was just on, I was just at an appointment down the Tavistock clinic down Swiss cottage on Friday. And that's sort of part and parcel in me doing that. But there's all, there's other reason personal reasons I'm going there, but that part and parcel of me building up the, social network that i feel i need and Mm. it's probably necessary because i as i said i never had that it was only when i got in when i got in sixth form it was like all of a sudden i went from having a bunch of notes all on paper scrawled out in my bad handwriting to okay here's a laptop you can use and you're getting exact you know when you're doing exams you're going to be doing it in you've got extra time and you're in this other place with four other people and it was a real kind of culture shock, especially because I also got a one-to-one mentor. and I remember in the early, I remember sometimes in my early days where the, the days I was meant to go and see her, I wouldn't go. and it was because my I, it was partly stubbornness on my part. But it was also like, I've done this, I've done this for so long without it. I couldn't, it was tough for me to kind of open up, to get used to figuring out how to, you know, actually it's okay to be with, to, you know, get this sort of assistance, this is meant for you, because it's not, because I remember one time, like, now, nowadays I'm not so bad with stuff, but back in the day, even in secondary school, like, I was the, I was the guy with the backpack who had tons of books and old paper and everything. And it was purely because I thought there was always going to be a day in the future where it was going to be necessary for me to use it again. Didn't know why, but it was just always like it's going to happen at some point. And I remember one day with one of the tutors there in the LRC, she went with me and sort of helped me out in terms of actually taking all the stuff out and trashing a lot of the papers and things that I didn't need, which was a bit of an interesting process because I suppose I was kind of hoarding in that sense. But also it did lighten the load in its own way. So I suppose I don't exactly have much concrete answers because I'm still sort of trying to figure out and it's a learning process. But there you go.
0: Oh, I think one of the reasons that we don't necessarily have concrete answers is because, you know, there, there is a certain lack of, of um, follow-up. In terms of like you know what what being told that does for you emotionally yeah um and then sort of you know I don't want to say that all of the input that we had um, was inappropriate because I don't think that's true at all but in terms of like you know was it was it uh, designed and tailored for us um, I'm I'm not sure that 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 was true very much sort of being told this is this is a thing yeah you know know, I I work in a I work in a dementia service at the moment. Mm. Um, and, you know, one of the people that I was working with was saying that, you know, she felt that um, a lot of what they did wasn't very helpful because of a certain lack of follow-up. You know, someone comes in and told, yep, yeah, y- you know, you have dementia. And it's yeah. like, well, what do they do with that information? Yeah, There's that some groups you can go to. Yeah. And it's just like, well, what does that actually do to you in terms of your identity and sort of coming to terms with the fact that, you know, this is the thing that you have now and it's not going away. Um, and you know, in the case of dementia, like it's going to progress, you know, and and how do you adjust to that? And I don't think that, you know, this, the, where the money is pouring into at the moment is giving people labels and not necessarily and actually going and here's what you can do with your yeah. life now. Mm-hmm. And I think that that um, certainly applies to autism as well. You know, we've got loads of people being told, oh yeah, you've got autism. Um, mm-hmm. We're getting better at you know spotting it in people. It's not just you know. Um, this person like doesn't talk or you know that kind of thing like we're recognizing that the spectrum is much wider yes. than was ever previously yeah. thought um and we're good at spotting it and then we're just telling people this is it like this is yeah. that you know you are you are different um this is it. good luck mm. with your life
1: yeah, yeah. This <laughs> is it you, and you just figure it out which that was kind of my thing because after sitting back it was like oh now the past then 17 years of my life up until that moment made sense but in a very very different way
2: Mm. yeah yeah (laughs) well um yeah it was interesting you mentioned that follow-up because um well that's one of the things uh we've addressed in the film we've been making.
0: Yes, tell us more about your film.
2: So the film is... Sorry about the chair. No, 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 it's fine. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) Uh, So the film is called Operation Syncopation Mm -hmm. and that was a working title until we could have thought of something better, but we never did, so ha. It was a documentary that I did with Dr Amelia Oldfield, who is a music therapist who works in part with uh, Anglia Ruskins University uh, in Cambridge, as well as uh, the NHS um, and books Brooks and the Child Development Centre. That's where she did the majority of her work. Uh, uh-huh. uh, the Child Development Centre at Adam Brooks Hospital. Uh-huh. And uh, to start, at the start of 2000, she uh, began her thesis, which would properly look at the effect of music therapy on children diagnosed with autism. And she had her colleague uh, record uh, all the sessions over... E- each session takes over two months. So you and you sort of um, go to, to visit once a week and you sort of have an hour of just playing with instruments and trying to develop communication skills. And they were all recorded. And then 17 years later, we have all this footage and uh, all 10 families that were part of her thesis... Uh, she's managed to get into contact with again. And so we've had we've had nine families come to watch the footage again and talk about their experiences then and how it's been since. And then we've also had um one uh young adult who was part of the programme. Uh her and her mother didn't necess- well, her mother didn't want to be interviewed, but she was very much keen to be a part of it. So she actually wrote an essay about her childhood experiences dealing with autism, and that's in the film as well. Mm,
0: not just read out?
2: Yeah, she, um, well, we 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 finally managed to organise the time where we sort of met up with her, and she read her essay as well, and her audio is in the film. Oh,
0: awesome. When's it coming
2: out? So we have our premiere uh, on the twenty third of October. I guess I'll say that. Just I don't know when this podcast is going out. So if this is in the past, the premiere was on the twenty third of October. <laughs> And we are planning to launch a crowdfunding campaign to get some extra funding for post-production festival submissions. And we plan to have it screened a few conferences for therapists and music therapists alike. And then the eventual goal is to basically get it seen by as many people as possible. We kind of agreed from the outset that we uh, don't necessarily want to or need to make a profit out of it because mm. it might be a little bit exploitative mm. to so. sort of try and make this into a cash cow. So we're just going to get the money to make the film and then once it's made, we'll try and get it distributed in such a way where it can be seen by as many people as possible. Yeah,
0: I'd be well out for watching that. Yeah. Um, awesome. Okay. Mm. Um... So, uh, one other thing that you sort of listed as being interested in other than the, the, the film um, was um, autistic people portrayed in media. Yeah. Uh, so, I don't know if you wanted to say a little <coughs> bit more about
2: that. Well, obviously, as a filmmaker uh, and as a cinephile and TV addict, mm. I have seen from time to time both clear representations of people with autism. It uh, specifically said, in the films or TV, they are diagnosed with autism. Or even there have been times where characters at times are almost portrayed as having autistic tendencies, but it's never outright said. And the funny thing is that a lot of the characters I see having these autistic tendencies, or even people I have been around interpret that as them having autistic tendencies, have been android to develop artificial intelligence in science fiction films mm. it's the weirdest thing it, it, it kind of started when i saw a film called ex machina uh it came out a couple of years ago directed by alex Garland, who did 28 days later it's basically about uh an intern who gets this one of the like once in a lifetime experience to uh talk to a new artificial intelligence and give it a turing test and so the film itself is wonderful it was a very good film but as i went out Someone was talking about it and said, Yeah, that AI, it, she was basically autistic, wasn't she? And I just kind of had this moment of, I was kind of shocked. Mm-hmm. I also kind of cringed that it was so simple to just classify this character as that, even though it was clearly meant to be something else. And then I also kind of thought about it, and the more I thought about it, it's kind of a, seems to be a common trope for artificial intelligence to almost be. Presented, performed, interpreted as almost being autistic
0: mm. yeah i mean i don't I don't watch science fiction, but um how how important is it to you uh, to to see um, at least attempts to portray autistic people in media because i I was just mm-hmm. listening to what you said, and I was thinking, oh actually, like the television series that I watch. You know, it's elementary. Mm. Um, with Sherlock Holmes in it, and Bones um, with uh, Temperance Brennan in it, like they're both lead characters who have been clearly written as autistic, even if the you know the um, writers have con- con- you know consistently denied this um, and made yeah. it sort of subtly clear that the reason they're doing so is that they can't be done for like you yeah. know not doing an accurate portrayal. Yeah. Um, but I still watch those shows, and I still very much strongly like identify with and like those characters. Um, So I wonder, like... But on the other hand, when I watched Atypical, Mm -hmm. um, I really disliked the way that character had been portrayed um, Mm -hmm. because um, he was explicitly written as autistic and it was quite clearly being portrayed as what autism looks like from someone who's not autistic's perspective. Right. Um, Because, you know, at one point the main character, you know, is talking about his special interest is the Antarctic. And at one point, you know... Um, his sister's creating a dating website for him. Um, and they're like, oh, do you have, you know, what do you want to go on your, your dating website? And he's just like, let me tell you this cool thing about penguins. Okay, um, yeah. And it's just like, well, if an autistic person <clears throat> had written that, I think we would have just had loads of facts about penguins rather <clears throat> than it being used as a way of portraying this guy as being weird. Yeah. Um, so, I, I yeah, I mean, like, is it important for you to see uh, these kinds of characters, even if they're not brilliantly done, or...? Does it just annoy
2: you or... It's a mixed bag. Um, I'm all for, obviously. I, I mean, I'm obviously all for accurate representation of autism in film. I'd be a slight hypocrite if I wasn't. <laughs> but at the same time, it's a mixed bag because on the one hand, you could present an a, a very negative view of autism mm-hmm. that kind of goes in both directions where it could either be someone who's, you know, very socially awkward and you know just doesn't look anyone in the eye and just sort of... You know, speaks in a very monotone voice almost like a robot in yeah. a sense but then it can also go the other way where this autistic person is tr- suddenly treated as a kind of jesus character mm. i guess in the best way to present it like they're the, you know there's this they're the savior that does that sees things differently and you know they're sort of able to connect the dots and they make everyone's lives better just by them being there. And they're multi-talented in one way or another. Exactly. Mm. And that's not the case. Uh, like One of the things I've found... Well, not, not one... Of, one of the things that I've wanted to present in the film I'm making is the fact that just because you're autistic doesn't mean you have to be the best possible person ever. Mm. You can just... You might want to be. You might want <laughs> to be. I, mean, I think everyone, deep down, wants to be the best possible person ever. But <laughs> of course. It, but it's okay to just exist Mm -hmm. it doesn't it doesn't matter it just it's it's perfectly fine to just be content with yourself and not have to you know change the world you can just find your own happiness
1: yeah exactly it just it's it's, character portrayals always a thing where it's just like sometimes the the arguments always like make sense to me but people (laughs) who always get opposed when it comes to oh, they did something, they did something different with it, with something that's already established, and I don't like that. And the main reason, the reason I'm always just like, you know what, you might as well do it, and do it as well as you can, is because a lot of those representation and those presentation of characters weren't done in the first place. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it was a thing that was maybe, it that was done before and was done well already, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be having this discussion right now. We wouldn't have had to worry about it. But because there's been, there's been a severe lack of that in one way or another, might as well try to make the steps to do it or do something that is there, you know, might as well do, you know, might as well, might as well try and make them autistic, might as well try to make them black or Asian, might Mm -hmm. as well make them gay or bisexual or whatever. Hmm. just at least it's the fact that you tried to do it'd be it'd be more slightly more admirable if you tried and you failed rather than just you didn't do it at all yeah
0: that's true I, I would rather people tried and failed um hmm. and that we didn't you, not that, you know we didn't give them not that we didn't hold them accountable but that we didn't give them brief for it and say well you could you, you know you could do this better and this yeah and that. yeah i you know I, I know a friend of mine um was asking me about how i felt about the fact that um the main the actor who plays uh, the main character in Atypical isn't autistic, and she said, "Does that not really annoy you? Don't you know there are autistic actors? Shouldn't autistic actors be employed to play autistic people?" And I was like, "No, I don't care," hmm. um, because. Uh, actors employed to be other people like, yeah. I, d- I don't need someone to identify into that thing what annoys me is the fact that atypical wasn't written by an autistic person yeah. because they couldn't possibly understand and i think that that shows very much in the characterization yeah. what it means to be autistic and how to effectively show that on screen mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and i i hope that um with you know this the introduction of these half autistic characters as it were yeah. um people go oh yeah no we quite like that um let's like you know hopefully that will change people's views on autistic people yeah. what they're capable of um and let's actually maybe get a few of them in to actually work for us and yeah. like have a have a greater influence yeah, on if the, if, things
1: yeah and let's not get it twisted i think if there was any more i can't name many off the top of my head i'm sure there are but if there was more autistic actors in there there would at least be a sign of you know, it would be visibility and that, that would at least be like, oh, OK, there's actually, a, you know, there's a it's not just the thing. It's not just the thing that people kind of bring out and put on characters to try and make them look weird or to try and elicit some form of sympathy from them. It's like, oh, this is actually a person who has a life and does things. And for all intents and purposes, as far as we know, they seem to be doing OK.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very interesting. The, the, there aren't many known autistic actors. I'm sure there are plenty of autistic actors. The most famous one I can think of is Anthony Hopkins. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, he's never uh, played an autistic character. No,
2: think, or no. Or anything, no. Like, or anything no. like that.
0: And he was diagnosed very late in life. Yeah. Um, but I, I do feel like if Anthony Hopkins had, you know, been caught earlier and you know and autistic yeah. characters are being played in the film of Zorro had been autistic you know it might have might have come out very differently so I, I, I do very much see the argument for why autistic actors should play mm-hmm. autistic characters but I, I think the writing really well, yeah. is far more important I, I would, at the end of the day you're creating a performance yeah. I would also
1: and, um, say it shouldn't be a thing that's just limited limiting in terms of them just Playing autistic character, playing mm. autistic characters just definitely, for the sake of it. Definitely,
0: yeah. like, I think you can see the progress with um, uh, gay actors and gay characters. Hmm. Um, in that, it used to be, you know, only gay people played gay characters. Is so there was anyone willing to do so? And then, you know, starting starting, I think with Brokeback Mountain was the real flood yeah. um, in two thousand six, and now you've got, you know. Uh, although, can I can I please actually am while I'm, while I'm briefly on this step out and say that. Um, Colin Farrell um, and Antonio Banderas were explicitly told by their agents to stop playing gay characters because it was getting them typecast. So kudos oh, to them. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, certainly, I think like, there's just no question anymore about like, you know, um, can you can you play this character? Can't you play this character? It might involve a very explicit sexual scene. Are you all right with that? Yeah. Thanks very much, uh, Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah. Um well, you know, and I, it would be nice to see something similar with autism in the future. It's
1: funny you say this cuz off to bring this off topic cuz I remember I was listening to two people talk about the I think it's one car film Happy Together with Andy Lau and somebody else and I think as a joke somebody brought up the idea of imagining that same movie it's the same movie which is a really sort of sensitive and emotional and understanding sort of no relation you know it's a movie about two asian gay men and he brought up the idea of uh, in passing of just oh imagine if you had that but with sylvester stallone and arnold schwarzenegger Mm. a lot of people wouldn't be able to handle it because it's like it's these two like 80s icons of a certain brand of masculinity in this really tender film, which also I should mention, Happy Together also has some slightly surprising but a very explicit sex that's just presented as is. Mm-hmm. And the person I remember saying described it as like two slabs of beef rubbing yeah. up together. Okay. move <laughs> on?
0: No, no. But it
1: was just it was just interesting in the sense because it's also like well, everybody's practically joked about a sort of gay subtext or whatever in those films like commando or cobra or whatever that's always been there so i don't know i would be up for that if that was a thing
2: yeah well going back to anthony hopkins um being on the spectrum Mm. it's kind of of funny that we're all now talking about uh, gay cinema because obviously there's a long history of gay actors um being portrayed in film as being overly straight i mm-hmm. mean um, you have rock hudson you had james dean mm. and it's kind of funny there's that correlation between gay actors having to play straight and then yes oh there's bound to be quite a few actors who are also on the spectrum who find themselves at, at times often having to play the straight man or straight woman you know sort of like very neurotypical characters
0: very good point i wonder if that's hard for them yeah um... I wish I could go ask them. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I would find that difficult. Definitely I would find that difficult. So I'd just be like, I have no idea where to begin with this. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Although I, maybe it's slightly easier because of course everything is scripted. Yeah. Probably most things are scripted, but of course mm. there, are, there are people who specialise in <coughs> sort of, you know, mm. just act spontaneously in front of camera. Yeah, you know?
2: pretty much. Well, yeah, Um, whenever I've acted a lot in my own films oh, yeah. and the characters I've played have been loosely written but always... You know, it was understated. They're just typical people, you know, neurotypical. Uh, but the thing is that all these characters that I play are in comedies and comedies are often generally very, you know, outlandish. You've got slapstick. You've got very awkward moments. There's uh, a lot of room to sort of play around with what's normal. And so I think it'd be quite, it's quite interesting that as someone on the spectrum, I find myself best playing normal characters when I'm sort of playing a normal, normal sort of thing.
0: Interesting. So do you think uh, if you were to appear in a drama or anything you might find that harder?
2: I think it'd be, it'd be an interesting step. I am actually um, well a mate of mine and I are planning to do a drama soon. Well I say a drama more black comedy with um, dramatic moments of uh, crying, best way place summing up I guess. And uh, the best way I probably would approach it is just with how I approach social situations. I mean, I've kind of, through my love of film, I've obviously, at times, adopted mannerisms and characteristics of people I've seen on screen and used that when I'm around people just so I have a way to sort of get through that sort of kind of almost invisible barrier, in a Mm -hmm. sense. So at times I'll perform and I will sort of turn myself into someone I wouldn't necessarily be all the time just so i can get through that so i guess i would use that same mechanism to do a
0: drama oh that's very interesting so what sort of uh, sort of things do you have coming up then
2: i uh, see well um let's see Well, coming up uh, so i have a drama uh, so sort of, i'm doing a, a sort of a, it's kind of it, it was a play but it's now a sort of all going to be a film because it's just easier to steal a house than it is to steal a theater <laughs> and um, that one at, at the moment it's called The Tortoise and the Swan and it's basically about uh, two uh, men whose wives are friends and they meet up to do life drawing classes together even though they haven't met so it's a, you know, it's just a, a general study of um, the fragility of masculinity shall we say and, it's quite fragile yeah it's pretty damn fragile <laughs> <laughs> And then, yeah, um, obviously in terms of after this documentary I've been doing is done, whether or not I will find myself in the future writing scripts or making films that dive this deeply into the world of autism, I probably can't say. Um, It'll just be that thing where if it happens again naturally, then I'll go with it. But I'm not going to try and force myself To try and examine that again, I'm just because if I if I, I find if I try and force anything, then it just won't work. The way this film came about was so natural and so built on miraculous coincidence. It was just it was just a nice thing to suddenly happen, and yeah, maybe trying to sort of force something out of that again just wouldn't work.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think it's very important to 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 go and be happy um, yeah. and not necessarily force yourself into things. Um, if our listeners wanted to check you out or get in touch with you anyway, how would they go about doing
2: that? So, uh, well, I have a YouTube channel uh, called Cosmic Ostrich, and uh, there's also a Twitter handle, which is uh, Cosmic underscore Ostrich as well, if uh, people want to sort of communicate with me through those. Um, we'll be, uh, a lot of the material, promotional material we'll be doing for Operation incubation will be on my YouTube channel, and There will also be links to Vimeo as well in case of uh, community guidelines, shall we say. Mm. So, yeah, that would be the best way to contact me. So, um, yeah, if anyone has any questions, or queries, or statements, send them my way and I might get back to you in two or three years.
0: (laughs) 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 Well, um, I'll be be sure to look you up. Um, Thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, And I wish you the best of luck with everything.
2: Thank you. It's been an honor. Um,
0: Um, So we'll be uh, back with another podcast at some point because we haven't established regularity yet. So uh, thank you from me and thank you from Odai.
1: Yes, thank you.